I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I'm your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me this week as my special guest co-host is Eric Rigstad. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Great to see you, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. How does it uh, how does it feel to be the other Eric in the writing world? When, when you show up for events, yeah. are people kind of disappointed that you're not me? They're always disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> they are, or at least that's my perception. <laughs> <laughs> you have a brand new novel, I Am Not Who You Think I Am. And it was just as I was starting to think it had been a while since we heard from you that uh, I, I saw the announcement of this book. Was this one of those books that, uh, was it a struggle for you? Did it did it try to kill you along the way? Or is it just the fact that publishing moves like a glacier? Yeah, it was, um, this book was originally slated actually for last May, you know, May of 2020, right when the pandemic was really hitting and ramping up and airports were shutting down and bookstores were shutting down. So the timing, we just decided, you know, this is not the best time to, to do this. The book's done, but we're going to look for another window later and see, we, you know, because none of us knew where it was going to go. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was the right moves, but it did take me, you know, a little bit longer to write this one. And it presented its own challenges because it was a different narrator and it's a standalone set in the at first in the seventies and then mostly in the eighties. So, but it was, it was mostly a pleasure to write, you know, they, they all have their own challenges where, you know, you have your face in your hands most of the day and are walking around like pacing and have nothing to show for it. But that's, <laughs> I'm just used to that. I wouldn't say I'm beginning to like it, but I'm used to it. There you go. That's, <laughs> the lessons we learn after doing yes. this for several books is like, oh, it, the misery yeah. never ends. Yeah, yeah. To most people, that would probably be misery. <laughs> and I'm just so acclimated to it now. It's no, it's just as went as well as any other book. <laughs> This is a book uh, at its core uh, about fathers and sons and how well we might know or not know our own dads. That can potentially be scary territory to unpack when you have to delve into those relationships, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it can be, you know, and and with what this boy saw and, and witnessed and was dramatized by intensifies everything. But really, yeah, you know, it, it is, it's a, a thriller and, you know, it has the, you know, it's been received well as such, but it, it really is, you know, the heart is about this boy who believes he sees his father and his life and isn't sure a little later on. And he wants to make sense of that event and wants to undo it if he can and, and wants to, wants to have his father back and wants to know if the note, I am not who you think I am that he found that day was even written by his father, who it was written to. And if it wasn't his father today, who was it? But yeah, it's, it's difficult territory to mine sometimes that void, that loss of a, a father and son and not knowing who that person really is. Yeah. You've written about daughters and young women while you having a daughter. And that maybe in a way that can be even more frightening to sort of delve into your fears of being a parent and, you know, caring for a person. And then is tapping into your own fears, maybe a great source of inspiration for mystery and thriller writers? It can be, you know, fears and also anger, anger sometimes at like the justice system, you know, and it's the silent girls had a lot of, you know, a big sort of subplot about a, a killer that was about to be paroled early. Um, Cause he continuously played the system. 
Um, so yeah, but fears too about kids, you know, having them girls, you know, I, I grew up in a home with a single mom and three sisters from the age of about eight years old on, you know, I saw three different sisters go through three different trials of, you know, junior high and high school and all the, all of that tightrope walking. And I've always had a great insight into that because of it. When I write crime novels about women, I want it to be focused on the victim and, you know, the ramifications of the violence. I never use it as sole, like an entertainment device myself. What, from what I know of you, when the world went crazy and we were all asked to, to hunker down and not gather in large groups and keep to yourself, I have a feeling that you and I had sort of the same reaction, which was, oh yeah, I can do this. This is no problem. Bring it on. Yeah. yeah. It didn't change our, our routine all that much. I mean, when the kids were, were home, the first part, they went to Zoom March of 20 to, you know, the end of that school year, June of 20, and then they were here all summer. But I mean, a lot of what we do and enjoy is outside things. Anyway, we do a lot of hiking, you know, we do a lot of stuff outside sports. And so where we are, it didn't change a lot of our habits. It didn't disrupt our lives nearly as much as it might have others, fortunately. <laughs> and are you one of those people that like when you go out hiking or just to walk the dog, when you're out in nature, is that where the ideas come? Is that end up being really a part of your writing process? Is just getting out and, and having time to think? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a way with maybe a lot of writers, that downtime where you're not forcing it, you're not sitting there. Yeah. When I'm, when I'm hiking or fishing or, uh, you know, even, even just, you know, mowing the lawn or up on a 28th ladder, trying to paint the eve of our house without getting, getting stung by bees. All of a sudden something will come to me. And I, that's just a subconscious working for me anyway. Yeah. I've come to trust that a lot, that those things will come, those little connections that I need to make a novel work that don't feel forced. So far they've come, you know? Yeah. I don't one day. <laughs> <laughs> do you always have a notebook in your back pocket or when you get a great idea, do you just trust that you'll remember it? <laughs> I used to trust I'd remember it <laughs> or that it was good enough. You would. Yeah. And I think that is the case most of the time, but sometimes it could be a really big thing that needs to happen, but it's actually also small and granular. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? You know, it's, yeah. you know, so I gotta, I gotta write them down or I'll put them in my notes on my phone. If I have my phone on me or I'll jot them down on, you know, a receipt in my pocket or something like that. All right. Well, let's uh, get to my first guest, shall we? Yeah. My first guest is John Copenhaver. His first novel, Dodging and Burning, was a critical darling and earned him a loyal readership. Now he's back with The Savage Kind, which deconstructs the myth of the femme fatale with a story of friendship and obsession in the 1940s. It's a really compelling look at a crime and the two women who want to solve it. Now, Eric, you say, I mean, you've mostly written about the current day, but in this new book, I am not who, who you think I am. You said it's you go back to the 70s, 80s. It's not as far back as the 1940s. But did that present uh, certain challenges or in a way, I think writing a, at least a little bit about the past is a little bit freeing when you don't have to worry about technology or, you know, the politics of the day. How did you find writing about the recent past? I found it pretty easy and enjoyable because of those things. You know, with writing modern day, you have to have to constantly worry about the technology. I mean, one of the good things about writing about remote Vermont, even in present day, is that I can rely on the fact that there isn't as much 24-7 access to technology. So I can realistically 
say that, you know, this person was out of cell phone range and not yeah. having to reach or whatever. It was co- sort of fun in a way to revisit, you know, the eighties when I, when I grew up and it just came really naturally. I think I always wanted to write a story based in the eighties. So in that way, yeah, it was, it was easier to write. You have said that this novel is an homage to the misunderstood femme fatale. And uh, I want to know, what what have we been getting wrong about the femme fatale all this time? <laughs> well, you know, I think in, in so many ways, um, she, I mean, she's a villain, right? And um, the problem is I really, really love uh, the classic femme fatale character, but I also understand her as you know a problematic and frankly fairly misogynist construct so i wanted to explore how you kind of resolve those two things like what is my attraction to the femme fatale why am i so compelled by that character and then like maybe there's something there about women um, who are seeking agency particularly in the 1940s and 50s but you know overall and my book is set in 1948 what, what might be underneath that what what might what characters might lie underneath the sort of uh, the construct and give them real you know layers and dimensions and complexity yeah because someone who does terrible things and maybe even if they are manipulating those around them they can't be all evil there's got to be there's layers right 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 the fifth atom with a heart of gold right yeah <laughs> or there's at least a reason why they ended up that way that's really what i'm interested in is is their uh, what is motivating them and perhaps their motivations were cast as fairly hollow before but I, in a lot of ways i see them as actually uh, a female character in the like late 1940s early 1950s they're seeking agency and power in a world that is not you know heading that direction for them gave a little bit of agency during the war is quickly closing down and um and my characters are also uh young women looking to their futures during this time period they're young queer women before we even you know they saw themselves that way but what does that mean for them? So there's lots of interesting kind of social stuff built into this construct that I'm trying to explore and maybe turn upside down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think having them be teenagers, it, it does sort of end up being a, a bit of an origin story no. to, to, you know, how someone can turn into the femme fatale. I mean, but you also put them in this position, you know, Philippa is new in town and they end up having this connection and that super intense friendship that I feel like really only happens in your teens yes. where things that flares so hot and sometimes so quickly. Is, is that the kind of thing that you feel it really only does happen at that age? You know, I don't I don't know if it only happens at that age, but I tell you more frequently does where you fall into these sort of passionate relationships, passionate friendships. Perhaps it's romantic, but it is definitely passionate. Yeah. And um, I think that in that space, lots of interesting things can happen. I think the power to be to sort of influence and, and bond in fascinating and disturbing ways. <laughs> I also teach teenagers. I'm a high school English teacher. So I see the I see a lot of passion <laughs> floating around the classroom and 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 I remember having sort of intense friendships as uh, you know, I went to all boards boarding school and 
you know, we were in it together and we, you know, we had to bond. Um, and, 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 you know, I think that it's just sort of an interesting psychological space to explore. Well, you fully embrace uh, the, the homage element of this. Uh, as we've said, this is set in the 1940s, uh, which is, I think, what we all picture in our head when we hear a, a term like femme fatale. So right. I, can we assume that you are uh, then a, a film noir fan as well as a fan of the, the writing of this time, the novels and the pulp paperbacks and all that? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, at least in part, that was, why do I love things that in some ways I, I don't agree with, you know, in a sort of social or a perhaps political way. But I think that's the writing, the, the, the writing is lush, it's full of atmosphere, it's full of really interesting energy. Uh, and that's true for the great film noir as well. Looking at that, why was that period such a powerful period, and why were these? Why were we embracing these, you know, icons? Um, I mean, the femme fatale has been around before the 1940s, of course. You know, I mean, we yeah. go back to Shakespeare. We have, you know, Lady Macbeth. <laughs> we have femme fatale as well before, you know, the 1940s. But it was an interesting time period to look at that, and, and, it, and I think it's probably getting at that tension between the war coming to a close, men coming back and seeing women as sort of a, a threat to their their manhood, their livelihood, yeah. and all these things. And what does that do culturally? You know, at this, in the meantime, like, I, I kept thinking about what is it that perhaps in a lot of these film noirs, we're seeing even the actresses bring a little more agency or life to a character that was kind of just all evil, but they it's so well acted or so well crafted that there's yeah. kind of all this humanity seeping out. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. All right. So you mentioned you, you were a teacher and I've, I want to know, like, for the discipline of writing as a teacher, are you constantly actually kind of having to remind yourself, you know, the, the rules, the, the disciplines in, in writing? Is it all second nature or do you have to sort of be a teacher to yourself in those moments where you sit down and maybe when you get stuck or maybe when you're plotting out? Yeah, well, it's so funny. Sometimes it's easier to, to tell someone what to do than to listen to your own advice and, and <laughs> do it. Um, now, it, it is interesting. I think, I mean, every artistic process is ex exploratory to some degree. And I've shifted my teaching away from like, learn all these rules and this, this always and that never kind of teaching and more to how you go about asking compelling questions. What resources do you have at your disposal to solve problems? That's the advice I need to give myself. It's not so much there's a right way or wrong way to solve a plot problem or develop a character, but I have to test to see if it's working. And, mm -hmm. you know, that can mean an edit editor giving me feedback. Sometimes it's my own testing to see if it, if it works. And sometimes taking risks is a super important part of that. I think if we're too worried about the rules, um, and that can mean, you know, grammar rules or the rules of our genre, you know, yeah, yeah. that, you know, you can get in a box. Do you ever uh, get any feedback from students or even former students who, who've read your book and uh, what kind of grades do they give you? <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, they're funny. They're like, I think they're a little astonished. You, you have to remember, they think we just materialize in yeah. the classroom and we vanish once. You know. <laughs> They, I mean, I love teenagers, but they are, by brain science, kind of solipsistic. And yeah. <laughs> they don't necessarily 
tell give back stories to their teachers and so they'll pick up a, a book or i'll get often it'll be like an alumni will reach out and be like oh wow i really love your book i had no idea like this was you know whatever you know it's like <laughs> thank, thank you like they were like there was always kind of like we had no idea almost <laughs> shocked they're shocked what's <laughs> so weird you have a life <laughs> yeah oh yeah it's totally true <laughs> i don't sleep under the desk <laughs> Well, this is your uh, second book that's been set in the past, and uh, I mean, I can, we can firmly call these historical. There was a, I was debating with another author uh, whether you know what what the dividing line is between historical or not, and it's it's kind of a sliding scale because I think whoever you're talking to, if it's within their lifetime, people tend to resist the idea that it's historical. But yeah, you know, we're, we're 60, 70 years back. I think we can safely call sure. it historical. I, what are the things that you you really love about that time period about about writing about that time period no cell phones <laughs> <laughs> no easy plot fixes for you right right i mean really that that my track is to the time period not only artistically am i drawn to it but it was really kind of the time period of my mother's youth my, mm. my mom is going to be 90 this year oh, wow. and i think you know in, in a lot of sort of uh, who my mom is and, and sort of as a woman kind of was really a product of the 1950s, but probably could have had a career, but was told that was not an option for her. I mean, by the yeah. men in her life, that's what she was told. The There's a lot of pain in, embedded in that. And I think I want to go get, get to the source of it, I suppose. And of course the world's in flux then too, because the war, the wars and the wars happened. We're dealing yeah. with that. I mean, huge like sea change in terms of, perception of humanity is going on. And so, um, you know, taking characters through that uh, as they're growing up is really kind of interesting. But in both my novels have a kind of coming of age element. Um, yeah. It also has some correlation to now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in a way, do you think that these characters and, and the basic bones of the story could happen today here and now? You could translate this and, and if, if you chose to, you could take the bones of the story and set it here and now, and it would have the same resonance, right? Oh yeah, I think absolutely. What's true about teenagers is still true about teenagers. The way that women feel limited and and and, and fraught, it's different. I mean, things are better, but there's still a lot of pain and a lot of societal oppression and limitation going on, patriarchy going on. Right. You know? So you could you could translate. It would be a little different, of course, but you certainly translate it very easily. And of course, like trying, you know, trying to, you know, figure out who you are as um, a young queer person during it is, is a little different now. That may be the thing that's probably the biggest, you know, change, but it's not just like, it's just, it's just different. Yeah. Um, There's more language and context for it than they had in 1948. Well, okay. So you've reinvented or or reinterpreted the femme fatale. Is there anything else on your radar? Something else you want to illuminate from, uh, from the the, the era's past that we maybe don't know enough about or got wrong at the time? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know if we necessarily, you know, got things wrong. I think that sometimes, oh, let's put it this way. This is something I was very interested in, in writing the savage kind is our means of perception for the past is Mm. often through media from the past. So we spend time looking at these old, uh, wonderful black and white film noir, but they're stylized. That's not the past. (laughs) 
that, but that's certainly how our, the way the power that art has to craft our imagination of the past is really in, interesting. And in writing The Savage Kind, I kind of wanted to walk this line a little bit where I nodded to some of that and challenged some of that. I wanted to incorporate it, but I also wanted to push against it um, at the same time. And it's, I don't know, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know if that's really, I'm, I'm illuminating something about the past, but maybe illuminating something about how we think of the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a difference between double indemnity and a newsreel of 1944. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> Well, all right. My next guest is Dennis Palumbo, author of the Daniel Rinaldi series. The latest in this series is Panic Attack, and Rinaldi's been described as Jack Reacher with a PhD. And I've, I love this series. I think thriller fans should be all over this. And Eric, Dennis and I talked about the challenge of putting a character into life-threatening situations time and time again and, and keeping it believable. And when you start another story set up in the North Vermont woods, I mean, how much do you maybe throw out ideas because you feel like you've already done that? Or do you risk boxing yourself in because you've already used ideas and you don't want to repeat yourself? Yeah, that's always a challenge for sure. You know, I, I try to write against type. I try to write against convention as much as I can in some ways. You know, I always think the first, you know, 10 metaphors or similes I write are all cliche that I've plucked from the ether or just really terrible. And the same thing goes with every sentence I write. <laughs> but uh, yeah, setups and, and dilemmas and danger that to me, I, I want to try to avoid just ratcheting it up, you know, or making it doubling down. I'm going to make it really, you know, now it's yeah. not just the pit and the pendulum. It's, it's the pit and the pendulum and the pendulum, you know, the, the pits on fire, yeah. <laughs> but just try to make it realistic and, and, not imposing something on it because I fear it'll be contrived, but, or even a sense of paranoia that may or may not pan out, but that you're with the, the character. So you're paranoid with them. <laughs> that's, that's a mean thing to do to readers. Here, pick up this book. You'll be paranoid for the next couple weeks. Well, uh, certain people's idea of fun is different than others. <laughs> Dennis, Daniel Rinaldi is back. Panic Attack is book six in this series. Congratulations. That is an achievement, getting to half dozen. <laughs> Thank you so much, Eric. You know, my favorite thing about this series, Rinaldi is a psychologist. So on the surface, it might be tempting to think that these books are going to have a lot of people sitting in rooms and talking or spending a lot of time inside people's heads. But these are thrillers with a capital T. Yeah, that's been my goal from the beginning. The fact that he's a psychologist is just so that I like his profession. He's a, a trauma expert who consults with the Pittsburgh police and he treats victims of violent crime. But these are thrillers. I mean, we maybe spend half a page where he's talking to some patient, but primarily he as uh, uh, finds himself in these ridiculous situations. Uh, Kirkus Reviews calls him Jack Reacher with a psychology degree. Yes. And that's kind of what he's like. <laughs> I love writing them. I like lots of twists and turns. But as a uh, therapist myself, I like the psychological insight my first person narrator has in the other people in the book, even the villains. Yeah. So there's a certain depth of understanding uh, my, my goal is well-rounded characters 
in in rapidly moving sequence of events. Yeah. Well, in Panic Attack, uh, he deals with a sniper who's on a spree, and right. you know, Rinaldi gets caught up in the case because he's at the wrong place at the wrong time, and. Like you say, I mean, you have a character who's, who's a psychotherapist. I mean, how hard do you have to work to put him in these what you call ridiculous situations, but to, to get him in the line of fire for each new story? I mean, it would be easier if he was a spy or something. Yeah, well, that's the thing. For example, in Night Terrors, the third book in the series, he is called by the FBI to treat one of their profilers who is an adult suffering from night terrors. But unfortunately, this retired FBI profiler is also the target of an assassin. Mm-hmm. And so he goes on the run and Daniel's with him. In, <laughs> in Panic Attack, his patient is someone who survives the sniper and is having panic symptoms. And by the way, the takeaway from the book is if anyone has had panic attacks or know anyone who has, the, the treatment options are all done by Daniel. But they're all done by Daniel Rinaldi in the field. I mean, Mm. bullets are flying, you know, (laughs) and so he ends up doing a kind of psychological triage for the sniper victims. And so I always try to find a way that I believe will get him into the story because he's a police consultant. And so I always try to figure out a reason these things can happen where he gets involved. That has to surely be the spark of inspiration for each new story is when you find that hook that can get him involved in something that's going to put him in the thick of something that puts both him and those around him in danger. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and, you know, like in Phantom Limb, uh, he has a session with a patient, a female patient. She goes out the door and is instantly kidnapped and he's knocked on the head. And so the police come to him and go, okay, what were you talking about? Who does she know? And then there's confidentiality issues. And then the kidnapper says, well, I want Daniel Rinaldi to deliver the ransom money. And so, Mm -hmm. again, my guy is put in a situation where whatever heroics he's going to do come out of his job with the police. The downside is the police don't like him. (laughs) And they're always threatening to yank his contract because even though he's a civilian, he'd be considered an agent of the Pittsburgh police so that if he does something that creates liability, they're going to have to pay for it. Uh So, you know, it's, it's that kind of tension with authority that is one of the things I really like writing about Daniel. Well, and you have built this world with the, the police that he does work with. And so you've had to create this uh, group of other characters that have to be consistent throughout. I mean, when you think of these stories, do you really consider this series an ensemble piece? Well, I think because it's in first person, it's always about Daniel in a certain yeah. way. But I do think of it as an ensemble because over the years and the six books, my readers have grown very fond of a lot of the recurring characters. They all want to know what happened. Uh, he was having a relationship with this one woman, and she's off one of the books doing something else. And I got emails from people going, where's Eleanor? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. Uh, and my characters, you know, we move through time in my book. So the recurring characters get married, they get divorced, they get injured, you know. So... We follow their lives through the eyes of Daniel, who's their friend or colleague. 
And, you know, they're always worried about Rinaldi because, uh, as you know, he and his wife were mugged years before. She was killed. He survived. And the thing that motivates Rinaldi is his survivor guilt. He's a very broken person. He drinks too much and he has a hero complex. I mean, a lot of his colleagues have interpreted him as you want to do something so dangerous, you'll die and you'll make up for surviving uh, Barbara's death. I mean, as Daniel himself says in the book, it was unearned luck that allowed me to survive. I've been trying to earn it ever since. As your job as a therapist here in Los Angeles, even though you write Mm -hmm. about Pittsburgh, uh, you deal with a lot of creative people. And writing, it it seems to me, writing is a great way to work out things in in almost a therapeutic way. I mean, at least I I certainly know a lot of people who do consider it that way. Mm -hmm. Do you think writing is, is it actually a good tool to process sort of feelings and emotions, or are we are we hiding behind fiction when we do it? No, I don't think we hide behind fiction because my theory is all writing is autobiographical, whether you're consciously mm. aware of it or not. So, so, so there's a little bit of Daniel in you, is what you're saying? Oh my God, there's so much Daniel in me, it's ridiculous. Is it, is it the ass kicking and, and the heroes? I was just going to say, except for the exciting, suspenseful, oh. uh, where he's real resourceful and brave. <laughs> That's not me. That's the made up part. Um, But no, I think writing is secondarily therapeutic, even if it's fictional, uh, because, uh, you know, all of our hopes and fears and desires are coming out of our lived experience. For example, when uh, in Head Wounds, the book right before Panic Attack, it's fairly harrowing. There's a lot of vivid and dark things happening. Mm-hmm. And it was coming out of a place in me, you know, as a therapist, I'm Mr. Humanist, Mr. Touchy-feely, Mr. Woke, you know. Mm-hmm. As a thriller writer, I get to be the darkest version of me. The worst things I can think of go into the books. So, you know, sometimes I go down some very uh, uh, dark arenas. Do you think that if you would look at a writer's collected works, you could uh, do a little bit of armchair analysis of that writer? I would certainly feel comfortable talking about their worldview, hmm. you know, uh, how they think life is, their their mythology of how the world is. You know, I wouldn't hazard a guess as to his or her childhood, though I might if you pushed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you look at certain writers, how they treat women is interesting. Yeah. whether they want justice or revenge. You look at their characters and what's at stake for the characters and what the goal of the characters are can give you a pretty good idea of some of the writer's core issues and his or her yearnings for how they want things to be. Well, that's interesting. I, I Don't ever uh, take a look at my books because uh, I don't think I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I could also be totally wrong. <laughs> Yeah, it, well, it's interesting because I, I, I look at a lot of people who seem like they're working out, uh, you know, issues with their father or something like mm-hmm. that. And then I, I do sometimes have to sort of, sort of take a look at my own work. And I think, you know, I, 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 I my mother left when I, when I was very, very young. So I kind of I didn't really grow up with a 
mother figure. And I always do the opposite. Like I I don't work that out on the page. I just, I never write about mothers. I I leave Mm -hmm. them off the page just because I think it's not part of my experience. So I wonder, there's almost seems like there's the two sides of the coin. Like if something is absent, you're kind of always seeking that and you're always writing Mm -hmm. about it and trying to process it. And then I feel like I do, I don't know if it's the more healthy way or the least, the less healthy way. <laughs> well, again, uh, that would probably be above my pay grade. I, uh-huh. I would say, though, that in, in, our, in terms of our psyche as well as in our writing, what get, gets left out is as important as what stays in. Hmm. You know, if a person has a lot of timidity around sex, you'll notice that their the romantic parts uh, of their love story parts of their story are very chaste. Hmm. And other people who are kind of obsessed with it, their hero is having sex every time you turn around. You know what I mean? So so it's like uh, I always think don't confuse, you know, what you need in your life with what you have to do for your story to be good. Right. You know? <laughs> but, you know, we write to explore what's in our mind and heart and to share it. And so that, you know, we can communicate with others our waking dreams, which is really what writing fiction is, certainly thrillers or mysteries. And they have a very powerful social role in that the fragmentation in the thriller hopefully gets coalesced and resolved by the end in a way Mm -hmm. that in real life doesn't always get resolved. And I think because mysteries do that in a way that often literary fiction, you know, more highfalutin literary fiction doesn't, Right. I think that's why they're so popular. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It's very satisfying to have something come to a conclusion that even if, even when you see it coming, yeah. it's because it's the conclusion that we might all want in our real lives that never mm-hmm. seems to come. <laughs> yeah. In real life, everything's kind of ragged and unresolved. And, you know, whereas in, in crime fiction in particular, it's it's not. Though I do like writers who go outside of that sometimes, like Gillian Flynn or uh, Richard Price, where it's somewhat ambiguous. Or, you know, my favorite crime novel, which is The Friends of Eddie Coyle by mm-hmm. George V. Higgins, which I think is a masterpiece. Yes. It, it, the ambiguity at the end of that book is so powerful. Well, uh, we look forward to many more adventures with Daniel, although I can't imagine uh, the, the torture that you're going to put him through. It's it, it, it's not nice what you do to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, sometimes I give him a, a pretty hard time. I certainly did in head wounds. In panic attack, the hard time is mostly happening to other people. I give him a little bit of a break. He's still recovering from the book before. Excellent. Well, yeah, it's definitely a series that that I can recommend wholeheartedly. I cause, because I, I think you're the the unique thing that you do is really combine that the insight that Daniel has. Like you say, that he's he's got a unique perspective on these people that he's dealing with. He's not coming at it from just a you know an FBI agent sort of rigidity or you know or someone who's thrown in the deep end and, and is just flailing the whole time. He's trying to, he's trying to work it out and he's trying to understand everything that's going on as he's going through these harrowing yeah. moments. Like you say, with the bullets flying, I, I don't know that I would have the wherewithal to, <laughs> to, to sort of take stock of what's going on when <laughs> in a situation like yeah. that. Well, but see, that's the difference between him and me. You know, yeah. we, we share a lot in common, but at that point, I think we draw the line. <laughs> uh, he's he's just a lot braver and more resourceful than I am. 
<laughs> well, good. Well, then I, I hope your uh, personal life stays as calm as it is and does not veer into <laughs> Daniel Rinaldi territory. No, I haven't had a patient kidnapped outside my office door yet. So uh... <laughs> that's a low bar. It's a low bar. I must admit it's a low bar. <laughs> Well, it's time for some book recommendations. And before I get to our in-house team, Eric, uh, have you read anything lately that uh, was good you think we should know about? I'm reading right now. I'm reading John Lanchester's collection of uh, reality and other stories, which I really love. They're, they're great, tight, exquisite, really well written. I marvel at them. You know, you always get a lot of joy of reading writers who, you know, like you think, I could never write like that. I wish I, I, wish I could write one of these you just know you can't because it's not in the ether for you or whatever. So you sort of enjoy them even, even more. All right, well, it's time once again for She Said, She Said, where I take a book, give it to two different reviewers, and then get them together to talk about it. And once again, I am joined by the team, Lauren O'Brien, a voracious reader and reviewer, and who is just one of my favorite people to see when I get to see her in person. And also my sister, Gretchen, who I have to see at holidays, whether I want to or not. You guys are discussing the book Nanny Needed by Georgina Cross. And from what little I've heard about this stuff, this book gets pretty crazy. And it's going to be a challenge to talk about it without giving anything away. But we're going to do our best. So, uh, Lauren, let's start with you. Just give us the top line on Nanny Needed. It was crazy and good. The end. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Put that on the the jacket cover and we're done. There's my blurb. (laughs) Gretchen, do you agree? (laughs) I do. I really like this book. I I liked it a lot. It was the kind of thing where the entire time you don't know who to believe. Everybody is lying about something. Everybody is gaslighting somebody about something. But you don't know who and you don't know why. And is it just one person? Is somebody normal? Or is it everybody? Or is it just, it was, yeah, it was crazy but like it's such a good crazy all right now lauren is a a book like this that's crazy and keeps shifting your your loyalties and your your perceptions of people does it end up being sort of hard to follow or does georgina cross do a good job of keeping all those loose threads straight for you i think definitely a good job there wasn't really anything that threw me for a loop where i thought gosh i don't know well i didn't know what was going on but where i thought i can't follow the plot um (laughs) What I thought was really interesting and clever is chapter one is almost a prologue that starts, it kind of jumps to maybe what is the real middle of the story. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of thought, wow, that the way I interpreted it was, wow, that's kind of a major spoiler that I would have thought would come later in the book. And what can she do with this story from here? And little did I know. <laughs> she had a lot more in store. Yeah, yeah. do a lot with now, that. <laughs> all right. Well, Gretchen, give us the, the basics. What, what's sort of the, the back jacket copy uh, summary of, of this story? 
Um, so this, so it's a story about a woman. She's in her early 20s. Um, she has recently moved to New York City with her boyfriend slash fiance. She had grown up, her parents had died young in a car crash, so her aunt had raised her in um, Virginia. And her aunt has recently passed away after a long illness, so she's really in debt between, you know, school loans and trying to pay off, you know, these hospital bills and everything, medical bills associated with her aunt. So she's really in debt. She's working in a restaurant, her and her boyfriend are working in a restaurant, and she comes across in the lobby of their building a flyer um, for a family in the Upper East Side that needs a nanny. So she kind of on a whim goes to apply for it. It's this uber wealthy family on the Upper East Side, super private. So they make her sign like all these crazy NDAs so she can't talk about the family. She can't talk about anything she sees or does, which includes her fiance even. So she can't even talk to him about anything. Kind of on day one, this job just seems a little too good to be true. seems a little off and it just kind of spirals from there. So the craziness comes from this uh, this crazy rich family. Yeah. Yeah. And at one point I was telling Laura, because we were, you know, we kind of talk in the middle. I'm like, man, this would be the perfect job for me. I would love this job. And then like 10 pages later, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Take that back. I, I have to say they did warn her that the nanny needed flyer includes the language. Discretion is of the utmost importance. Special conditions apply. Oh yeah. So, Lauren, where uh, where would you shelve this uh, in in the bookstore? Is it is it a thriller? Is it more like psychological suspense? Where, where does this fall? The the phrase domestic thriller I don't really like, but I, that immediately jumped to my mind when I would say psychological suspense. But it was thrilling too. I think all of those things, which is good. <laughs> It, it, there is a difference, uh, like you were saying, like there's a difference between not knowing what's going on and not knowing what's coming next, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, what's the fine line there? I mean, I think it has to be at least somewhat grounded in reality. I mean, I can suspend reality to a point, but some stories you're just like, okay, this is just so over the top. And this one, again, like there are a lot of crazy things that happen, but again, you could kind of like, oh, okay, you know, like the super rich they're 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 different from us so maybe okay maybe some of this could could really have happened and gone on and you know things just kind of escalate from there and I kind of like I mean this one I really felt at the end like it was just coming like the last 20 30 pages just stuff was coming at you so fast and every time you flipped a page you're like what now wait what (laughs) Um, but I really like that because it was I mean sometimes you can kind of anticipate what the end is going to be I did not see this end coming Excellent. Well, that sounds like uh, an enthusiastic two thumbs up for Nanny Needed by Georgina Cross. Uh, And this is one, Gretchen, we might have to trade these. The next time I send you a box of books, you might need to mail this one to me. Oh, I will. Yeah, I will definitely hang on to it. Yeah, I really, I like this one a lot. Same. Well, my final guest this episode is Alvern Ball. His second mystery starring Chicago cop Frank Calhoun is called Blue Religion. And it takes a hard look at a complicated guy caught in a complicated situation while also spotlighting the strict code that police often work under to protect their own. Uh, Eric, you've written about the police in upstate Vermont, but even though the job title is the same, a book about cops where you are and cops in Chicago are two entirely different animals, aren't they? Yeah, I think they, they are in, yeah, certain very different way, you know, what they deal with on a daily basis, certainly. 
you know, and how they have to interact with people and how much they interact with different people. I think, you know, cops around here are pretty, they, they know a great many of the people that they're interacting with, you know, so yeah, I think it's an entirely different approach to how they go about their daily job. Alvern, uh, thanks for joining me today. Blue Religion, your latest book, it's the continuing adventures of Frank Calhoun, a detective in Chicago. And the the Blue Religion itself is, uh, I guess I, w- I would describe it, what, the, the religious-like dedication that police officers have to the badge and, and to the job? Is is that fair? Yeah. How, how would you describe yeah. it? Yeah, that's exactly. It's that that fraternal order. <laughs> I always find it funny when they say the fraternal order of police. Or, you know, you know, I'm like, is it a is it a religious cult in the, in the <laughs> idea of that? Uh, you know, but the blue religion is this idea that you know the wall, the blue wall of silence, also of like you know, cops stick together and we're family. And really, in some ways, police organizations are just another form of gangs, you know, just like everything else. It's just an organization. And I mean, has writing about the police in 2021, I mean, it has to have changed over the years, right? I mean, you kind of can't ignore the politics of it anymore, can you? Right, right. And um, I I talk about this duality of of writing um, about police officers, but then in the same breath, going outside and possibly being harassed by them, especially when I was younger, right? got to rise by him a lot. So it's like, wait, you write about the thing about people that have oppressed you in a way. And and I grew up reading, you know, you know, Sherlock Holmes stuff, you know, the Hardy Boys, you know, Michael Connelly books. And then um at some point when I started to want to write about cops, it was just like I just remember one this one moment I was coming home from college and I was coming to see my grandmother and these cops pulled me over opened my backpack, like emptied everything out onto the street. And um, they were searching for drugs. And I was just like, you do realize all the drug dealers that you're looking for, like are standing right across the street, <laughs> looking at you, harass me. And just remembering that moment and then thinking about um, when writing Blue Religion, how that played into like, okay, do I am I going to be cynical about how I write about cops or am I going to try to portray them as, you know, Human beings also, you know, they're doing a job, you know, coming into it um, with one idea. And then as the job, as you're on the job more and more in the years past, you start to become more jaded to the yeah. job and the thing that you set out to do. And I think some cops get that way. And I think they forget whatever the purpose was of why they started, unless you really did come in with the intent to, to not actually be a protector of, and serve the people and be a protector of the peace, then that's a whole different story, I think. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting. I mean, Frank, uh, you know, he has troubles not only on the job that just come with with the gig, but he also, his personal life uh, is kind of a mess. (laughs) You know, I think when when you're creating a character like this, I mean, that's got to be important to be able to to balance. And and like you say, that's the thing that humanizes him. And here's, here's a guy who's got issues with his father, I mean, that's that's going to make you, I think, relate to a character way more than just how they perform on the job. And that's true whether you're writing about a cop or a plumber. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that um, I think one of the things I didn't even realize when I was writing it until like, I had to go back through and start doing one of the edits was that um, he's like, he's juggling having like trying to build this relationship with this woman. She's a single mother, but he wants to be in their lives. But he's like. Um, there's stuff that's happening with the family because of 
him being a cop and this juggle of this duality of like being a cop, but also trying to, you know, be a family man. And how do you juggle the two, especially when the job is calling and it's such a high stakes crime that almost consumes him in some ways. Well, you are an all around writer. You got graphic novels, screenplays, novels, you work in multiple genres. When you're coming up with a story, what pulls you into one form or another? What is there something that says, oh yeah, this feels like a novel. This feels like a graphic novel. This feels like a screenplay. Usually the idea will start off, like say, as a graphic novel and I'll start writing it. And before I know it, um, I'm like, man, this would be a really cool you know, movie I'd love to watch. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going to write the screenplay or uh-huh. it'll be vice versa. Or like I'll come up with the story um, for a graphic novel. But as I start writing, it, I'm realizing, man, this would really be a cool novel. And then I'm like, I guess I'm going to write the novel, which is happening now for something I'm working on, a YA thing. So uh, it just depends. Like usually I let the project dictate to me what it's going to be. And sometimes it's multiple things. Like I'll write the novel, then I'll turn around and go write the screenplay. Then I'll turn around and from that screenplay, I'll write the graphic novel. And I'm like, oh, I got three different versions of the same thing. Like when you do the same story in multiple formats, does it is it you end up with like a different understanding of the story, or you, or you recognize things if you translate it into you know a graphic novel that maybe you didn't realize if it was just a straight prose novel? Yeah, yeah. Um, the hardest thing I realize sometimes is that it's easier for me to write a graphic novel than it is prose, just because uh, prose takes a lot of description and and detail, whereas I, there's ways to skirt around it when you're writing graphic yeah. novels, because it's really just getting the essential idea about what you want in that scene across to the artist so that they can draw it, you know, um, whereas when you're writing prose, sometimes you have to get very detailed about the space, you know, the environment. But the biggest thing I've learned also is sometimes that um, when I'm writing like a screenplay, it's it's really sparse. But then when I go to the graphic novel, I'm like, oh man, there's details I didn't need to write in the screenplay because there's going to be a costume designer. There's going to be a director. There's going to be certain aspects. And then I'm like, oh, there's more detail. And then if I go from the graphic novel to the pro, I'm like, oh wow, there's even more details about <laughs> stuff that I'm seeing in my head that I didn't have originally down on the page. But now I have to like really exhaust the environment, like, you know, the smells, the sounds, the spatial relationship of characters that I wouldn't necessarily have to do in one of the other two mediums. Well, there are so many great Chicago authors and so many great Chicago set crime novels. It feels like it's just a matter of time before everyone who lives in Chicago is eventually going to write about it. (laughs) Right. Is, is there something in the water out there? What is it? Um, yeah, I think so. I think um, it's just it's it has that noir feel to it, that that hard boiled feel that other cities may have, but for me, I have not found it. Um, like you know, when you think about Michael Connelly, you think of like that California style of writing, which I, to me in my head, I'm like, what does that mean? But it, it means the people, you know, and the the foods and the the characters of a place. And I think. Chicago, it's 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 got because it has all four seasons or technically two seasons. Yeah. <laughs> um, you get that feel of this grittiness that you don't find in every city. But it's also it's all in the neighborhoods. Like you have your mm-hmm. downtown area, and you branch out into all these different sections of the city. The neighborhoods are what actually create Chicago and gives yeah. it that 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 feel. Uh, from where I'm writing from. Um, 
basically nobody writes about the west side of Chicago, uh, unless it's to talk about, you know, the gun rate or the murder rate of, you know, what's going on in the city. So that's what I, I wanted to bring to the writing of, of um, Blue Religion and the idea of that there's a whole another side of the city that a lot of people don't get to see. And then that side of the city, it's a beautiful side. Yeah, it has its dark places like any other place, but there are people, working class people, people that go out and barbecue and go to the parks and go to games, you know, and they're trying yeah. to live that American dream. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. You, you can have a dozen writers from Chicago all writing about the city, but if they're writing in these little pockets, they're, you're, you're getting a completely different flavor. It's not just one generic, oh, I'm going to write about, you know, one of Al Capone or whatever. Right, right, right. Yeah, and yeah. You get a lot of that sometimes. Like when you mentioned <laughs> Chicago, people go, Al Capone, I'm like, yeah, Al Capone died in like 20s. <laughs> <laughs> Now is is this right? Uh, you handwrite your first drafts? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Are I, you crazy? I handwrite, <laughs> I handwrite everything, um, literally everything. Like I keep a notebook for everything. Like I write in <laughs> notebooks. Everything gets handwritten at some point. And then you, you hand it off to somebody else to transcribe, or you do your own nope, transcription? I, I do all the transcription. Oh man, myself. So I write. Um, so how I normally write is that I'll start writing handwrite. Oh, you know, longhanded. And then um, when I get about two thirds of the way through, I'll start typing. It's like my pen is connected to the brain and to the pad. It's like everything is just connecting in one flow. And I can see everything in the room when I'm writing. And so I always tell people, like, uh, when I type it, that's really my first draft. Because everything I'm handwriting is just. It's like you're almost spitballing it to a degree, even though you're writing it. Because I'll write in, uh, I'll write all, all over the page, uh-huh. you know, in the gutters and everything. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, impressive. I think you're a little crazy, but it's working for you. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> it takes a little bit longer, but yeah. <laughs> Well, Eric, I want to thank you for joining me today and also to congratulate you on I Am Not Who You Think I Am. There's there's buzz on the street about this one. I'm predicting big things for you. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. I, I, this was fun. We should. This is this is good. Let's do this again sometime. Yes, fun. absolutely. Well, it, just <laughs> book, come out with book. another book and then we'll... Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, well, there's a catch. There's always a catch. <laughs> Well, I, I always look forward to your books very much, but you have you have a prose style that just fits my wheelhouse perfectly. Your stories, they just go down so easily when I read them. So I, I'm really excited to, to dig into this one. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it, Eric. Well, and thanks for always answering my call when uh, when I ask you to, to do these kind of things. But us, Eric's got to stick together, right? We do. We do. With a C anyway, Eric's with a C. Yeah. The right, people who spell it the right way. Yeah.